0: The following is a production of the Phoenix Studios Podcast Network here at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. For more podcasts, be sure to visit uwgb.edu forward slash podcasts. This is Serious, Serious, Serious Fun. Welcome back to Serious Fun, after a brief little hiatus there. I am, as always, your host, Brian Carr. And I have to ask you a question. What exactly do sports do for us? I mean, they're a fun escape from the everyday, as Johann Huizinga would suggest. They're a venue in which we negotiate and raise awareness of complex social issues as well. Just ask people like Tommy Smith and John Carlos, Jackie Robinson, Billie Jean King, and most recently, Colin Kaepernick. Sports are a venue for local and national pride and tribalism. Think about the Miracle on Ice, the Astros winning the World Series, and so on and so forth. But if sports are a part of our lives and reflect our values, we have to grapple with the fact that the importance we place on them leads us in pretty dark places. Sports headlines of the last several years have been rife with stories about accidental student death, sexual assault, domestic abuse, and any other horror you can name. The system is often financially exploitative as well. In September, the FBI announced a massive investigation uncovering a pay-for-play scandal in which coaches at at least six different Division I schools were paid off by financial advisors and athletics apparel companies to recruit players and funnel them into specific, self-enriching management contracts. On top of this, players also often receive lackluster educations at many schools and are subject to NCAA rules that are often draconian and even hazardous to their health. As we roll on through the college football season, we're just a couple weeks away from Selection Sunday in the college football playoffs as I record this, and of course my Oklahoma Sooner is one of the top four teams in the country, and we have an ongoing discussion about on-field protests in the NFL, I've been thinking a lot lately about whether there is such a thing as ethical sports fandom and consumption. If we care about issues like domestic violence, sexual assault, free speech, and anything else, can we really support a system that often actively works against those things? Tell me answer this question, and many others. This week's guest is Jessica Luther, a freelance journalist and writer whose work has appeared in ESPN the Magazine, Sports Illustrated, Vice Sports, and many other national publications. In 2016, she wrote the book on the subject on sportsmanlike conduct, college football, and the politics of rape. It's a fantastic overview of the ongoing systemic issue of sexual assault in university athletics programs across the country. She's also a fellow in the Texas program in sports and media at the University of Texas and a member of the Association for Women in Sports Media, as well as the recipient of several other awards and honors, including the 2016 Excellence in Media Award from the Texas Association Against Sexual Assault. Of course, she also co-hosts her own feminist sports podcast, Burn It All Down, which, by the way, is one of my favorite podcast titles of all time. So without further ado, here's Jessica Luther on Serious Fun. All right, and here we are with Jessica Luther. Jessica, welcome to Serious Fun.
1: Thanks for having me on.
0: Yeah, it's great to have you. Again, I, I just read your book uh, on sportsmanlike conduct. It's a fantastic read. I'm just going to uh, recommend it up front for anybody listening. If you are concerned at all or care at all about these issues uh, as they pertain to college sports and sports in general, it's definitely worth a read. So I just want to say uh, I really did enjoy that. Just I like to get my geek out moments out of the way early.
1: <laughs> well, thank you.
0: Yeah. Um, so... I gave you a little bit of kind of like a spiel at the beginning of the show, but I want to ask you sort of personally, like uh, an old interviewing trick I I learned from some of my professors and that sort of thing is I want you to kind of give me the Jessica Luther story, right? Like they would always start off by asking, like, give me your story, kind of how do we get to this point where we're talking today? What's your background and interest in in these topics of crime and ethics and sports fandom?
1: Yeah. Well, it's, a, it's been a really wandering path for me. I was actually in academia for a really long time. I went straight into graduate school after college, and I got my master's in Latin literature, and then I was in the history department at the University of Texas for too long. Mm-hmm. I don't even know how long. I almost finished my dissertation in, in history, and I didn't um, for lots of reasons. Mainly, my mental health wasn't very good. And... I think the fact that I'm a trained historian comes through in the work I do. Yes, very
0: much so. I will say that, yes.
1: Yeah. Uh, So I didn't go to J school, journalism school. That has all been self-taught with wonderful mentors and editors over the last four years. But I I got to this specific topic by accident. Like, at the end of my graduate school career, while I was still pretending to write my dissertation, I... Got into the feminist blogosphere. It was the first time outside of the academy where I really felt that, like, oh, people care about the things that I care about. Uh, I don't know if there's a feminist blogosphere anymore, but it was a big thing back then in 2011 ish. And I had my own blog that I started and got on Twitter. And I just remember, you know, I was just consuming a bunch of stuff that you would imagine feminists care about. you know, cultural issues around sexism and objectification, and then, of course, gendered violence. And so that was something that I cared about just in general. And then that met up with my college fandom, football fandom, which I guess I'll explain my, I, the way I say it is that I was born into generational fandom. Right. So my dad and my mom, but specifically my dad, uh, they both went to Florida State. And my dad is a diehard Florida State football fan and has been my entire life is today. He loves Florida State football and taught me to love Florida State football. And it was the one school that I applied to go to when I was a senior in high school because I wanted a big part of my college experience to be watching Florida State football and And so, and I did. We were very good when I was an undergrad at Florida State, and we won the national championship, and I went to that game. Uh, And so in 2013, I had just sort of started writing about sports. Like, I figured out that you could get paid to write about sports, Um, and I was doing sort of op-ed writing. And it was that summer of 2013 when... Uh, Let's see, four Vanderbilt football players were arrested for sexually assaulting a fellow student. And then there was a fifth player who was added on after the fact kind of stuff, encouraging them to delete evidence. And then at the same time, uh, three Navy football players were on trial for gang raping a fellow midshipman. And I believe they were all found not guilty. In the Vanderbilt case, three of those guys have been convicted over the last four years and we're actually still waiting for the fourth guy, he'll probably get a plea deal. Um, and the guy, after the fat guy, was he pled guilty, uh, pleaded guilty very early on in the process. Um, and so those two things were happening at the same time towards the end of the summer of 2013. And I paid attention because I cared about college football. I cared about this issue. And I realized very quickly that sports media didn't care very much about that issue. And that was the same time when Johnny Manziel, who was, I think he had just won the Heisman the year before, Texas A&M quarterback, he had possibly signed something for money, which mm-hmm. of course you're not allowed to do. Um, I put quotes around allowed, you're not allowed to do um, as an amateur, quotes around amateur athlete. And so sports media was consumed by Johnny Manziel I and whether or not he'd been paid. And almost nothing. Like, I was basically reading the Tennessean out of Nashville and the Washington Post because it's Annapolis is local to Washington, D.C. I was reading everything about the two cases through those papers um, and mainly their crime reporters. Um, And so it was on my radar. I was like, this is a weird disconnect here that we could have eight players at two major programs in trouble for the exact same thing. And all we care about is whether or not An amateur athlete got paid for his signature. I ended up writing a piece in September 2013 for the Atlantic about recruitment at college football programs. Uh, There was a big Sports Illustrated story at the time about Oklahoma State, and I was sort of piggybacking off of that. And so it was on my, again, it was just something I was paying attention to when in November 2013, the Jameis Winston story broke, and Jameis Winston was a redshirt quarterback for Florida State, my my school. I was paying close attention to the team. We had been very bad for the years leading up to that year of 2013, and then we were great. Uh, Jameis Winston is a phenomenal quarterback. We finally had an offensive line that he had, so that gave him time to do his magic behind. Uh, we put up more points in Clemson than any visiting team had to that point. I assume it's still true because Clemson is much better even than they were then. Uh, it was exciting. And by the early November, 2013, there was chatter that Winston was going to win the Heisman, the biggest award in college football that we could possibly win the national championship. I remember like, I would watch his press conferences. Like he'd go in front of the media every week and I would watch those. Like I was a fan Right, And it came out in November of 2013 that he had been under investigation, or let's say, he had been reported 11 months earlier uh, to the Tallahassee Police Department by another student that said that he had raped her. So in theory, he had been under investigation for 11 months, but it became clear very fast that neither the Tallahassee Police Department or Florida State had done anything, really, with that report and so it became a huge national story, whether or not the state's attorney who had, for the very first time ever, gotten a hold of the case 11 months later, whether or not he was gonna charge Winston. He ended up not. It's a really super weird press conference to watch. He's a weird guy, the state's attorney in Tallahassee. Or, yeah. And, uh, and but it was this big story about like, what's, and, and the main thing that was happening in sports media is like, how is this going to affect Winston and his team? And that was like, because I was paying so much attention as a fan, it was the first time where I was really taking in a lot of this all at once. And I just kept thinking, a woman reported this 11 months ago. Like, Mm -hmm. what happened to her? Um, And we were getting a little bit from her attorney. And I can't remember now, but there was some incredibly sad, like once the state's attorney decided not to press charges and her attorney did a press conference and someone asked at the end, like how she was doing. And I feel like, the attorney said something like, well, she's just been crying. Something Mm -hmm. to that effect. And I just remember being very sad about the whole thing. And so that was the beginning. I started doing media criticism of how we covered these issues with sports and sexual violence. Media criticism is pretty easy. It's easy to tell people what they're doing wrong. right? Even though I think it's important. That's not to say we shouldn't be doing it. But that eventually shifted... Sorry, this is a very long answer. No, it's okay. Uh, and, <laughs> in April of 2014, so I felt like there was so much. The other big thing that happened is once the state's attorney said no charges, there were a lot of people in sports media who said, okay, done here. We don't need to worry about this anymore. And I, at the time, I remember thinking, that can't be right. like this. Mm-hmm. And it turned out that this, the case wasn't over. Like He didn't press charges, but Florida State didn't do their... Um, didn't have their hearing for another two years. She filed a civil suit. She, they settled all that stuff almost four years to the day of when she first reported. So the idea that it was over was just wrong to begin with, as if it begins and ends with criminal charges. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was this, like, okay, no one has to talk about this ever again. And I remember feeling like that was wrong, and that didn't, that just never sat with me correctly. And then in April of 2014, Walt Bogdanich at the New York Times wrote this amazing feature. It was about Winston, but it wasn't. It was about the Tallahassee Police Department and all the ways that they did not investigate when that woman reported. And I just remember reading that and uh, like viscerally reading it and thinking, this is it. This is why you can't just, there's so much more here to say. And of course, that was a story about the system built around this one, you know, around this one player in particular who was very important to the team. But, like, it was really about exposing sort of issues within, in that case, a lot of it was about the criminal justice system. He came back in October of 2014 with Mike McIntyre, and they wrote a piece about the overlap between the FSU Athletic Department and the Tallahassee PD, which was another great, difficult read as a fan, um, but that April, 2014, that was the moment where I was like, okay, this is what we can do. Like, these are the stories that need to be told. Um, and they don't end when, you know, when everyone else wants to move on. And so by the end of that year of 2014, I had worked with the first survivor ever. And I published a piece of advice about the university of Tennessee at Chattanooga. Uh, she said that a wrestler had raped her and it was all about the school's response as well as like the one particular strange law in Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Um, and I liked that so much better. I liked that kind of reporting. It fit much better with, like, my historian training.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I just liked it so much better than my own opinion. Right. <laughs> and, um, yeah, and that, as soon as we published, the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga scrapped their Title IX policy and started to write a new one. Mm-hmm. Like, a, the first thing that I wrote in, in that way, like, had an effect Um I don't know how, I don't know the ripples of that. Like, I don't know what that's meant on campus since. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, so from there, I just haven't stopped in large part because when you write about this topic with any kind of real care for the people who report, uh, survivors of gendered violence will reach out to you um, all the time. So it's been a good four years that on a pretty weekly, it's a, at least a weekly basis that someone reaches out to me to tell me their story in some way. In uh, moments like this where we're having a big cultural discussion about gendered violence, it's, it goes up. The number of people who reach out, go up. So um, that's been a hard part of this work, but it just means that the stories keep coming. So um, yeah, that's kind of how I ended up as like this person who does this thing
0: all right well so and, and you mentioned that we are kind of right in this sort of almost pivotal moment in a lot of ways um do you kind of feel and we're getting a bit ahead of where i wanted to be i guess at this point in the conversation but that you it's not you brought it up do you feel that we're starting to see kind of a shift in terms of um the you know uh victims of these issues being taken seriously now that we've got the high profile cases in hollywood um you're starting to see more of that spilling out into other things including athletics and politics And more of that. Do you think that this is sort of like a a turning point in how our culture deals with these issues?
1: I don't know. And that's the historian in me saying, I don't know. I I personally feel on a day to day basis that things are different. Right. um, In a sort of exhausted way. Like I woke up today and Ali Reisman, the gold medalist, the Olympian gymnast uh, had come out. And mm-hmm. said that she had been sexually abused by Larry Nasser, who was the u s gymnastics doctor for many years decades I think um, this is and the now, same guy
0: that has been accused by other gymnasts
1: yeah, there's something like one hundred fifty people wow. who've come forward, um, and he 's on trial he there's so many civil suits against him at this point, but you know it's like I went to bed with Lewis C k stories, and I woke up to ellie Reisman's story, mm-hmm. and uh, it does seem different in. accountability a lot of men have lost jobs Mm -hmm. recently and i think that's incredibly important if we're going to change stuff uh i did have a friend on facebook the other maybe yesterday she said something like is this just whack-a-mole though like is this systemic change or like are we gonna knock a few of these guys down and then everything will go back to the way it was and i worry as a historian that it is a cycle like maybe it's a little bit better now than it was before um But one of the things I was doing, I can't remember, sometime in the last year, and I don't remember why I was doing it, um, but I was looking at New York Times reporting around this issue in the late 80s, because there was a huge discussion in the late 80s. So the big federal law that we talk about all the time for college campuses around gendered violence is Title IX, which is an anti-discrimination civil rights law that says uh, schools that take federal funding can't discriminate based on sex. And so the idea is that if you've experienced gendered violence, uh, the school must do something in order to help you. And if the perpetrator is a fellow student, then they must figure out whether or not the person did it in order to make sure that their campus is safe. And that and no one is losing, the big thing is that no one loses access to mm-hmm. education uh, because the school doesn't do anything about these issues. But in the late 80s, there, there are laws that pair up with Title IX, but they all sort of get rhetorically placed under the umbrella of Title IX. The other big law that often that happens where we just say Title IX, but sometimes it's Title IX and Cleary. So Jean Cleary was a woman in the late 80s who was raped and murdered in her dorm room in, at Lehigh. And the school told nobody. They like didn't even tell people that in like the room next door mm-hmm. what had happened. And so her parents went on a big campaign to get federal legislation in place that says that schools, educational institutions, camp- I think maybe college campuses, have to report every year crime statistics of what's been reported on campus. And so most often, for most people, what that looks like is a text message that you get on your phone If you attend a school and there's any kind of violence that happens on school, you get a text message, right? Right. We hear about this when there's an active shooter on campus. The school sends out all kinds of notices. That's because of Cleary. And and specifically because when Virginia Tech happened, they didn't do any of that, and they got fined substantially under the Cleary Act. Um, So in the late 80s, when everyone's debating what happened around Jean Cleary, Um, and what should be done about this issue on college campuses, You know, the New York Times reporting about it is almost the same, (laughs) like the kind of cultural discussion Mm -hmm. that they were having in the 80s, especially the people who were against doing anything, the sort of people claiming that this is like a sex sex panic and it's not that big of a deal and no one needs to really worry about this and really should college campuses be in this business? And um, you could almost pull those kind of op-eds at the time and put them today and you wouldn't really see a difference. Right. That those are moments for me where I'm like, Oh, is this better? Like, are someone going to read my stuff 20 years from now and be like, Oh, she was saying this 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. And yet here we still are with the exact same system in place where maybe a couple extra dudes have been, um, fired because someone pointed out that what they did was bad. Uh, and so I don't know. So that's a long answer again. I apologize. No, uh, no but you're fine. I feel, I do want to say, like, I do, it does feel different to me in this moment, but I feel uh, we just won't know, right? Like, we'll know in a year. I mean, I often think about the fact that the president um, was basically an admitted sexual predator, elected anyway, um, still in office. Uh, Like, what does that mean? Like, so what does it mean that we're doing it now, but we weren't willing to do it a year ago? Is that progress? Or is there, like, we making up for lost time, you know, like, trying to um, course correct? Or is this just, like, a reaction to the fact that we failed a year ago? I And is it all going to just sort of shuffle back? I mean, Mel Gibson is in a new movie.
0: It's true. Yeah, I I noticed that. It was strange, right? Like, not just a new movie, but a family-friendly movie. Like, this is, like, a...
1: So, what? Yeah, I- <laughs> like, how did that happen? I know he was up, up for Oscars last year. Mm-hmm. Um, but that movie had to have been made during this time of the last year where we were been having a much bigger cultural conversation because of the president. Um, I don't know how that man like, oh. so I don't know. Well, I mean, i, I ho- I'm hopeful most days. and I you mean, the, and we should always give credit to the victims who come forward. Right. Um, most of the time, those, that it's women, um, but as we've seen, especially around Kevin Spacey, like it is not always true.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and so, all people, and you shouldn't ever feel pressure to come forward as a victim. It's not your job to do that change. Um, but credit to the people who do, because mm-hmm. uh, that's a very difficult thing to do in our society.
0: Very much so. And, and, and I feel like, and, you know, again, this, you mentioned the, the politics aspect of it. Um, one thing that's been kind of alarming is that if you look at the Department of Education, where it's headed right now, they're trying to undo a lot of the work that has been done um, mm-hmm. th- to talk about sexual assaults on campus and that kind of thing. Um, and, and that's, I, I find that, you know, I, I don't normally get too deeply into politics on the show, but as, as a human being, as an educator, I find that alarming. Like, it, it's, it is sort of a baffling move that we're going in this opposite direction at this point from, honestly, where I think we should be going, right? Let's... Right.
1: Yeah, so with Title IX, it's like 32 words long, right? Mm-hmm. It's a statute. And so the federal government, specifically the Department of Education, sometimes the Department of Justice, but almost always it's the DOE in this case, um, they set the guidelines for how that statute should work in real time, right? And some of that is because there's been court cases, and so there's, like, legal precedent. Mm-hmm. But a lot of it is up to the DOE, and they get to just write these guidelines as they see fit. And so there was a big watershed moment in 2011 when the Obama administration wrote guidelines for Title IX around gendered violence. It sort of set in motion a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about over the last six years, as well as incredible student activism, mm-hmm. like young people on college campuses forcing this issue um, in ways that I find absolutely remarkable because I was not that aware of anything when I was that age. Um, so yeah, so now we have a new administration and they can reset the guidelines. They can just literally rewrite them. And that is what it looks like. Apparently they're going to do, I don't know, they say they're going to do some kind of like commenting. They're going let the public comment. Um, but you know, the thing to remember always about Title IX, and this gets lost a lot in the cultural conversation we have about it, but it is a civil rights law. It Mm -hmm. is a law maintaining people's civil right of access to education, right? Um, And it's been clear from the jump that the Trump administration is not interested in most people's civil rights, right? Like it's not It's not surprised to me that they're hostile in this way to these civil rights because they've been pretty hostile to lots of people's civil rights over the last, how many months are we in now, 10, 11? Mm -hmm. Um, It is hard because so much work was done over the last six years, and it's so interesting because for so many decades, it wasn't like previous to 2011, schools weren't working on this issue, but certainly not with the rigor and um, the fear of God in them (laughs) the way they were after 2011. Um, But this is a slow thing. Like this is a big deal thing to change. Mm -hmm. I I think when I I wrote a New York Times op-ed and I think it made it in there that I compare it to like turning a boat, right? Like there's a little rudder and there's a cruise ship and you turn it and then it just takes a long time to get everything changed in any kind of direction. Um, so you can turn that rudder, but then you all have to wait for something to happen. Um, and for so long, so many decades, I mean, women have only been on college campuses since what the sixties and mainly the seventies, but like for so many decades, no one did anything really about this issue. And then we've had six years of like pretty piecemeal, you know, not the greatest implementation of these federal guidelines. That's a lot of what the scrutiny is, is, like, not meeting them. Um, It's not enough time. Like, of course you're going to find fault with it. So this idea of, like, you just got to back it all up and, like, start again is pretty ridiculous. Um, I was just on a panel with Paula Levine, who's an ESPN reporter who's written extensively on this issue, the same sort of intersection that I do, and she was saying her disappointment with this change is, like, so much of what was going wrong is people weren't implementing the guidelines as they were supposed to. Like they did, people weren't there yet. Mm -hmm. So we don't even know what it would actually look like in practice, the way that it was supposed to be set up. And so here we are again making, you know, it's like, we're going to have new guidelines that are harsher to people who report and make it more difficult to report. and, And so therefore make it more difficult for certain people to access their education. And it's just very disappointing that this is where
0: we are so let's talk a bit about uh your book on sportsmanlike conduct you wrote this in 26 or published it in 2016 obviously the writing process was much longer than that um this detailed and discussed rape culture in college football as well as potential ways to combat it and i always tell my students like it's one thing to be a critic and to say this is a problem to point it out but you also have to have a solution or offer potential ways we can deal with it in order to be like for Cause that's the other half of the conversation that gets left out a lot. So I really want to mm-hmm. say thank you for doing that because it oh. really proves my point. Um, I really loved the chapters that are more like, okay, so here's the problem. How can we potentially fix that? And I thought that was a really valuable addition to have um, as someone who works with students and athletes and that kind of thing. Um, but what was the response to that book? Like,
1: it was actually pretty good. And I was really nervous. Like I, one of the reasons I was hesitant to write it was I was worried about the reaction to it. Cause people often get very mad at me. Writing about this topic, but I think the mm-hmm. book was too much for people who just want to hate. So it's not like they're going to read it or really engage with it. Um, I like I had this one really great one star review on Amazon that was long and detailed, and I remember my husband being like, "Don't read that," and I was like, "No, like this guy read the book. Like mm-hmm. I think he and I are just never going to agree on certain things." And but like he read the book, so right. and, and he didn't like call me names.
0: <laughs> so that's about I'm as like, good as you can hope for from an Amazon review. Yeah,
1: right. And so I appreciated that. Like I'm willing to have you know conversations with people who will engage fully in the topic. Um, but overall, it's been pretty good, and I think it's because I like to think that it's because the book is about the system and not about an individual case. Mm-hmm. Um, we're so used to picking apart individual cases like we as a culture super enjoy that like that Mm -hmm. work of dismantling a single case finding all the ways that we don't need to believe the person who reported and then sort of washing our hands of it and moving on and then we don't need to do anything systemic about the problem because we figured out that this one case that we all care about isn't important right and and like we'll see it in in ways where, like, even when multiple women come forward or multiple victims, like, you'll see people try to pick apart each individual one. Mm -hmm. Um, Oh, so frustrating. But I think because the book is about the system and not about an individual case, like, there is this sort of reckoning that has to happen if you read it. Like, you do have to come up with some reason for yourself, even if you don't like me or what I'm saying, for why it is the way it is. Mm -hmm. And... And so overall, the response was actually pretty good. Like people who have contacted me about it liked the book, were thankful for the book, glad that it exists now. Um, So uh, much to my relief.
0: Yeah, I can imagine that's a huge relief. But I mean, I mean, reading the book, it's hard to find fault with it for the most part. Like it is meticulously researched. Um, There is, I mean, citations just uh, for days, like everything you write in there. Um, It's just like I said, that's the historian in you, which, again, I, I can it all makes sense now. It all clicks like, yes, this is absolutely how a historian would approach the problem, which is <laughs> right. a good thing, because um, it really puts it in that proper context of how things have developed. And it was kind of like horrifying to see Um, in a lot of ways, like, you know, I did my PhD at the University of Oklahoma. Right. And so okay. there's Oklahoma. And here's this, you know, tr- uh, like long trail of incidents that happened at that campus. And most Mm -hmm. of them I was never aware of because they just didn't talk about what happened with Barry Switzer and that kind of thing. Like, I knew vaguely that there were problems with uh, the program and that he kind of resigned under bad terms. But there's a lot going on. And it's fascinating how quickly a lot of the story gets lost on these campuses and how quickly we move on to the next thing.
1: Yeah. So one of the things I talk about in the book, and I just spoke about it, is like the myth of isolation. Right. Right. That is one of the most popular narratives, and now for people who have never paid attention to this, they're now going to see it everywhere. When this, when gendered violence pops up, like Mm -hmm. it's always about isolation, and we talk about, um, you know, uh, coaches and athletic administrators, university presidents, like really love to say, like, well, this is an isolated incident that Mm -hmm. doesn't say anything about our program or our university. Blah 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 blah, and like you'll see it when there are multiple players like across a year who get in trouble and then like, this is nothing. These are isolated cases. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're just like, what? Um, but they're never isolated. Like it's almost never true that if you don't look in the last five years that you're going to find something else within that department. Right. Right? Yeah. Um, like that should be every, I, that's again, the historian in me, but I want that to be everyone's instinct is like when a story breaks, like go and Google and make sure and find, whether or not we've forgotten the story already. Mm -hmm. Um, And we do. We so often, again, because we don't really want to deal with it systemically. So once we wash our hands of it, then it's over and we move on and you don't have to sort of hold that in your brain and then therefore you don't have to reckon with it the next time there's an issue. And so, yeah, it can be really demoralizing to look at any individual program Mm -hmm. and sort of... Look at what's going on there. That's not true for everybody. No. Um, and I've had people contact me to tell me the relief that they felt when their book did not show up, uh, yeah. <laughs> or their school didn't show up in my book. Um, and I was on a panel recently with a coach, a football coach from a D three school, one of the SUNY schools, mm-hmm. and he was like, "You, you know," he said that the book mattered to him because it made him realize, like, you don't want to be the person that ends up in this book, mm-hmm. right? Like, what can we do to make sure that we're not? Doing the things that that make it so we end up in here, um, so yeah, that's yeah. a good
0: step in the right direction at least,
1: yeah, sure. yeah, um, I'll take any steps in that direction,
0: and what's also interesting about the book is that when when you when you approach this problem, there's no one root cause to any of this. Um, you know, I, I'm just like uh, going back through my memory of the book and just kind of thinking about like, there are problems to be attacked at all levels. There's the whole question of the degree to which coaches will work to try to cover up things in order to protect their players. Um, the thing that I found really kind of um, shocking was the discussion of how players will be moved around from program to program when a problem happens. Um, there's coaches,
1: the, coaches do it too.
0: Yeah, yeah, coaches as well. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the whole question of how complicit the police and the people who are supposed to be investigating these crimes mm-hmm. are and how closely they are tied to these programs. There's just any, and and the thing that blew my mind. One of the, I actually told my wife about this after I read it. I'm like, I had no idea about the student host thing. The whole idea of yeah. the, the gator getters and that kind of thing, like just parading young women around as like enticement for the for for young men to come to these programs because literally, like, well, we're not gonna like you know instead of looking at the academics or the facilities or anything like that. It's just you're, you're selling an image or a lifestyle. Um, or, or just the promise that the that girls or girls like this um, might become intimate with you—that's right. alarming.
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, that that part of it, recruitment, is a big thing. I mean, to be fair, which I try to be, right? There are lots of reasons. I, I, this that is, a, is a
0: very fair. I want. I just it's very fair handed, <laughs> very even handed well, book.
1: I mean, there are lots of reasons that a recruit might choose to go to a certain program, right? right. Like. Part of why students go to Alabama is because Nick Saban is going to be their coach. And he's mm-hmm. great. And he has a record getting a certain percentage of his players into NFL. These schools create ridiculous facilities right. for these student athletes. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I mean, they'll have people that their entire job is to make smoothies for these guys, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, they're, and they're certainly athletes who choose certain schools because of academics that of course. D- all those things focus are part of recruitment the part that bothers me to no end is that also what is part of the enticement the idea i mean all the things i just listed like those are the rewards right, right. like the, the idea is like these will be your rewards for when you come here mm-hmm. this is what you get out of choosing this school over another and one of them that is often part of that calculus is access to women and And so, schools for some of them still do it. Um, They're not supposed to uh, under the NCAA rules, strange rules, but there's one that exists. But they will use almost exclusively women Mm -hmm. to recruit these players. Um, And, you know, most of that is pretty benign. Like, those are women who give them college or give them campus tours, take them to football games, introduce them to people. Like, not. Anything beyond that, right? right? Um, but that doesn't always work that way, and there mm-hmm. is a sort of implication that, like, one of the rewards you get is access to women, right. and we see it spill over into violent, in violent ways. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes on recruitment visits, uh, where women report that they were raped at parties involving recruits, um, which is not really you shouldn't we shouldn't be surprised that that. Is a possible end goal of this stuff. I mean, some of these guys like are seventeen years old, mm-hmm. right? And they have grown men in their lives who they care a lot about, and their opinions matter a lot to them. Offering up young women yeah. as rewards mm-hmm. for choosing that program, uh, and on top of all of that, I think it's important. Like I interviewed a sect educator about this part, but all of college football is exploitative. Mm-hmm. And these players themselves are exploited, right? Like their bodies are absolutely exploited within the system, their labor uh, to make money for other people. Um, and so how people, how they are taught how people get used and, you know, like that whole language right. and, of exploitation and, and ideas about exploitation are just like baked right in to the system itself um, as much for the players as as well as uh, often the way that they use women uh, to recruit these guys. Mm-hmm.
0: And it's, again, like it's all part of a much larger tapestry. And the, there's complexity to these issues uh, in terms of, you know, it's not just one thing in a lot of cases that attract these. But just, yeah, I just was surprised at how long that practice was still going on. Mm-hmm. And, and it
1: still goes on still today. It still goes on today, yeah. they're They're not supposed to, and some schools are getting in trouble for it. But then I have people... Mm-hmm tell me all the time about the ways their school's getting around it Um, and I mean I just heard the other day from a D1 school I was um, Skyping into a class and a young woman there told me that they were trying to recruit just women into Mm -hmm. the athletic department recruitment Um, so yeah it's, it's happening still even though less schools are getting better about how they hide it I think
0: right um so yeah it, and again i really encourage anyone listening to read the book it goes into a lot of detail on these things but one of the key points i felt when i was as reading this book uh as someone who teaches courses in broadcast and mass media and media criticism um was specifically addressing the shortcomings of sports media and addressing these issues now we could have an entire separate episode maybe about espn alone and how they as the worldwide leader in sports have not done a very good job of actually talking about a lot of the things about sports um but, and especially issues like this, but to what degree do you think access and the profit motive affect how sports media cover these issues?
1: I think it's definitely part of their calculation on this stuff. Um, access is a huge deal mm-hmm. in sports media. Uh, you know, the fear that if you report negative things about a program, you'll you won't have access anymore um, because they won't give it to you is mm-hmm. is a real fear. That I think uh, editors contend with, you know, a place like ESPN is such a juggernaut mm-hmm. that it doesn't quite function that way for them. So they can have their investigative arm, which you know, outside the lines, like the kind of work that they do there, um, is pretty spectacular. And I, right. I rely heavily on a lot of what they do. So it's a really good show. Uh, yeah, and it's just the the investigative reporting that comes out of there. Like there was a year, 2014, where they did multiple pieces about Missouri and their issue with sexual violence on campus and within mm-hmm. the athletic department. And Missouri's not going to stop ESPN from coming No. despite this. And, you know, maybe it was more difficult. Maybe there's certain people at ESPN that don't have access anymore. But, um, I do think, especially for smaller spaces, I, they have to worry about access. Um, I also think like a lot of, I don't know. I think a lot of people go into sports. The re- reason I did, like, I love it. Right. right. Yeah. Um, and so you want to be close to these people, and then suddenly you have to be critical of them in like really fundamental ways. Mm-hmm. I think that's probably a big thing. Um, so, yeah, I, it's hard to sort of tease out like all the barriers um, to this kind of reporting. I do think access, and we've seen a lot of discussion recently about this within political media mm-hmm. and the price that we pay that some people paid to have access to certain people within politics and whether or not they were willing to be critical in the right ways, um, for fear of losing that access. And therefore, you know, especially if you're like a beat reporter, like that's your whole life is having access. So it's different if someone is like a crime reporter, um, and, and looking after this, you know, we just had the whole thing with the LA times where Disney was angry at their investigative unit Mm -hmm. for that one piece and was cutting off their, their critics, the movie critics. Um, so, I do think that that plays a big role in certain people's choices around what it is they're going to cover and how they're going to cover it. Um, I also just think it's weird in general that, and I feel for these guys, like, and they're mainly guys uh, in sports media, that the, these beat reporters whose job it is to talk, tell us about players and coaches and you know predict whether or not the team is going to win um, to be on the field all the time, and then suddenly – they have to be experts in Title IX Mm -hmm. and the criminal justice system and gendered violence and report these things out. Like It's kind of strange that we leave that to sports guys uh, to handle and and not just give it to the crime reporters who probably have a better idea. And and part of that is we think, okay, well, they know them the best. Mm -hmm. They have the access. But um, then you bump up immediately on the fact that access is actually part of the problem. Right. (laughs) In reporting this stuff, so I I, yeah, it's something I think I think about the access issue, and it definitely matters for me. Like, I reported on Baylor with my friend Dan Solomon, and we had the first big national piece uh, about Baylor, and we published that at Texas Monthly. And part of that was because Dan worked there, and we knew the editors, and it was Mm -hmm. easy. Like, we could easily contact them and have conversations with them about the issue, but also they weren't a sports mag and we thought we were worried that we would have more trouble placing it with a a place that was just sports mm-hmm. because Baylor was a really big deal at the time that we reported that story and you know we were writing about the choices that the head coach made and he was a really big deal at the time and and so like it made sense on some level, we were just familiar with Texas Monthly. We knew them, they knew us. We're in Texas. Like, all those things made sense. Um, but there was, like, a you know, I remember he and I very early in the process, like, discussing if we would, where we would try if Texas Monthly didn't want it. Um, and we were like, is there some non-sports place that we think would make sense because we were worried about them not wanting to make Baylor angry.
0: Right. Well, it's interesting because, uh, you know, when you think about, like, how sports is presented, say, on the local news, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's absolutely part of the newscast and elevated to a degree that other things like entertainment, uh, health, that sort of thing aren't. It's given its own time. Um, it's given its own specific anchors and that sort of thing. But it's treated at the same time it's, as this important part of the newscast as kind of like this secondary escapist sort of thing, right? Yes. Um, yeah, that's a good point. And, and, and I wonder if like that attitude does kind of uh, fold over into sort of the more mainstream sports focused uh, uh, venues. But my, I guess my question is, like, if we're going to start treating sports and, you know, and historically sports has always been an, uh, an avenue or a venue in which uh, we negotiate issues of, you know, race and gender and identity and politics and that kind of thing. It's never, you know, the whole just stick to sports thing has never really been true. Right. 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 You can't just stick to sports because sports in a lot of ways are a microcosm of much, much larger issues and always have been throughout history. But what's interesting is I think, like, would you say that if we're going to start looking at it like this, where we're going to have sports as part of this mainstream uh, news coverage, um, that we need to start treating it more like hard news, like should these outlets like ESPN and Fox Sports and that sort of thing have investigative units that are actually able to go out and cover this or do you think that this would just be something that wouldn't really take or that there wouldn't really uh, that the the coverage might be compromised in some way
1: mm. I think that's mm. I mean I do think that they should have investigative units doing this mm-hmm. work in part because they have their means and the resources right. right and and the power like they can report on these things and not fear that they will lose access to stuff. Um, but they're also in lots of ways financially invested in the very things that they're then being asked to be critical of. And Mm -hmm. what do we do about that? Um, yeah, this is, this is such a complicated thing about sports, um, almost more so than say entertainment. Right. Mm -hmm. So I'm upset. I'm so interested in fandom. Um, because it doesn't make much sense, right. generally, what why it is the way it is. But fans are so intense. Like, you, I mean, I have made people very angry mm-hmm. uh, just by simply suggesting that like something in a program is not on the up and up, right? Uh, that they could be doing better, and that will mm-hmm. really make people so mad. And in large part because they identify so strongly with this institution, and that doesn't quite happen in entertainment. I think we maybe see a little like maybe there's certain segments where it does, like if it's like a comic book thing or right. you know, like there's certain ways that this stuff manifests and I do a lot of fandom. research
0: in video games. I can tell you that they're they're lunatics. The fans are right. absolutely crazy.
1: <laughs> yeah. And so you get this kind of like intense identification on the part of fans. So they feel not that I'm critiquing an athletic department, but I'm critiquing them. Right. Right? Mm-hmm. And I think and part that's because they know they're buying into a system that's bad mm-hmm. and that they're therefore participating in the very thing that I am saying. Right. It, it's, it's like lost. I don't see
0: myself as bad.
1: Right. But I see myself therefore, in
0: this thing.
1: Right. So how, how do I reconcile? Right. How do I reconcile that? And I can't remember why did I start talking about this. But I – oh, so this idea of like you know the local news and sport is, as escape – With, like, I feel that. Like, Mm -hmm. I watch sports because I can just enjoy watching people Mm -hmm. do incredible things with their bodies. And um, that's why I love sports. But I also, and so I get that sort of rejection of wanting to interrogate this thing that I love that often allows me to just root for something. Like, you're rooting for something that you have literally, you lose nothing. Right. Nothing if they lose or Mm -hmm. you, like, But you can be fully invested in that and then they lose and it sucks and you feel bad. But like really nothing has happened to you. Mm -hmm. So you get to have a whole emotional journey at no cost to yourself. Yeah. All by watching people do these amazing things. And I get it. Like, I always joke that I don't really write about tennis Mm -hmm. because I love tennis too much. Right. Um, and I, I am critical of tennis. Like, I do actually sometimes write about racism and sexism in tennis. But there is a part of me, like, when I hear a story, I just want to be like, nope, nope, I'm not going to read it. I already know that's a problem, but I don't care because mm-hmm. I love it so much. And I'm just going to keep watching. Um, so I get, I get that yeah. reaction. I get why local news presents it that way. Um, but I do feel like it is – there's especially the parts of it where there's so much money mm-hmm. involved. Um, you can't just let it just be a thing on its own without, right. you know, really critically looking at it. And it's so important to so many people in their mm-hmm. own daily lives, right? This is why there's the ongoing struggle to have gender equity in sport mm-hmm. because you know, girls who have access to sport often have much, you know, it like has an, it improves their lives mm-hmm. because sport can be so great for the individual um, throughout their life. So, yeah, yeah. I don't know, again, long way, like, no, it's, it's... around, but, um, yeah, I do want to see those places, I do think that they have an obligation, mm-hmm. and I want to see them doing the investigative reporting, we have to always recognize their own investment mm-hmm. within the thing that they're critiquing, and sort of the limits of, of what that can look like from those places, um, but also, like, I don't begrudge people, like, turning on their local news, Like, here in Austin, Texas, where I live, like, those guys are, you know, it's endless Longhorn Mm -hmm. coverage. And I get it. Like, I get that that's what my friends want to watch when they turn on
0: the local stuff. And it gets ratings, too. Like, Like you will get ratings from running a story about the Longhorns or, you know, here in green Bay, the Packers, right. Sure. That's, that's the number one game in town because not only is it something that people, there's a lot of fans, there's also a significant economic investment in the team. Um, it has a huge right. impact on the area. If they're doing well, I think the whole area generally tends to do well. Um, I mean, the halo effect is, is a pheno- is, is a real phenomenon, right? The idea mm-hmm. that this team, if they do well, like, you know, I, I, uh, I, I was born and raised in Michigan, so, you know, I'm kind of, I'm mm-hmm. very partial to Detroit sports in general. And sure. So, like, you know, when the Tigers are in the World Series, all the stories are about, oh, well, this is going to have a huge impact on the local economy. It could help the state overall, not just the Detroit area, but across the, because people will be more willing to go out and spend money. And it's weird when you think about, again, like, you, you can't separate and just say, well, this is just sports or that, you know, they're separate. We shouldn't be worried about these issues because they're that, Intertwined with right. who we are and not just ourselves, but our economic future, our, our social future, that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, so I'm sure we're going to get to this. You're probably going to ask me, but I don't really watch college football mm-hmm. <laughs> anymore. Um, and I do a little bit, but not like I used to. And one thing I lost was like small talk mm-hmm. with people because I don't really know what's to- like. I sent a text message to my friend the other day that was like, Georgia's number one. <laughs>
0: they are i I
1: didn't know that i don't know i swear that i saw that um i'm gonna
0: have to look it up right now please continue
1: (laughs) yeah you should look it up yeah i don't know if they are this week but i feel like last week because i saw alabama was number two and i don't know what i was doing and i was like oh who's number one and i was just like i don't know anything about this like i can't go to a party and just small talk this with people anymore and i can't really do i can't do that with my dad like Mm -hmm. you know i can't sort of Talk about Florida State football minutia, like I used to, mm-hmm. and and that's a that's a sad thing to lose yeah. when when you're not participating. Like there is a community around mm-hmm. this fandom that can often be really great. Of course, uh, it's just when it's not great that you have to really wonder what what this fandom is doing. Mm-hmm.
0: So I want to so. ask you another question, and and I guess this kind of like leads naturally into uh, the next topic that we're talking about, um, and I guess. You know, I know you're working on a new project uh, about this. That's coming out sometime in the future. I'm really looking forward to it because, again, this is kind of like this is the issue I was interested in. And uh, mm-hmm. you know, I, I it was it was recommended to you uh, recommended to me by a friend of mine that I should talk to you about this. Um, but the idea of our sort of moral complicity in sports fan. This is where we get in kind of like the sort of like chin mm-hmm. strokey um, kind of ethical uh, discussion here. I guess my big question, and we can kind of specify this a little bit. Um, is there such a thing as ethical consumption when it comes to sports? Can we have that?
1: Hmm. Probably not. Okay. Right. Um. Especially not if it's any kind of money-making thing. Uh. And at this point, the way that sport works in our culture, like that's true in youth sport. Mm-hmm. A lot of times now, um, there's so much money invested in it, and I don't know. I I struggle with this a lot right mm-hmm. uh like one of the questions i get asked a fair amount is like should women boycott football mm-hmm. i'm like no because then it's just left to the men yeah
2: what, <laughs> what becomes of the men
1: yeah and then, and what does and what does that mean and like why should women like give mm-hmm. up this thing that they love right. um and the people who don't want women there will just be thrilled that, this, mm-hmm. <laughs> that they're boycotting anyway um but yes, they should. Cause the system is horrible. Right. So I don't, yeah, I don't know if there is, you know, it's like when you, what is it now when you fly on an airplane, they allow you to like buy carbon
0: the, mo- the offset like, credits.
1: Yeah. Like the offset credits. Like yeah. Is there any, like could something like that ever, whether or not you believe that that's a real thing that works in the world, but like
0: I, I, I'm trying I think to it's an like, easier the offset, conscience than anything else. But.
1: Yeah, like what would the offset credit mm-hmm. look like in, in sport? Like, okay, I'm going to watch this football game, but mm-hmm. I'll do this. And, it, and there's a little bit of that, right? So when Adar, Ardolis Chapman uh, was pitching for the Cubs last year when they went to the World Series, mm-hmm. he, they brought him in late um, in the season. They traded for him. And he had – I think he was one of these people who was suspended, right, for a significant amount of time – for domestic
2: violence
1: mm-hmm. um, and Cubs fans were really like upset but also like ooh we need a closer right. <laughs> uh, and so like one woman came up with this idea that for every pitch she would donate so much money to a local domestic violence shelter Okay, right? Like, that's an offset yeah. um, whether or not that's 100% ethical and like makes the consumption ethical I don't know right um, mm-hmm. but that's doing really important local work which this issue is so important to tackle on right. that. local level Um, and so maybe that kind of stuff right Mm -hmm. Uh, when people are actively trying to put their money in in the space that they feel like is being um, destroyed or harmed maybe harmed by um, whatever's going on in sport but I don't know I mean college football college I mean college football in particular like I think a lot about those guys that play it and they're their long term physical and mental health mm-hmm. because of the game that they're playing. And I don't know at this point in time if you can ethically consume that mm-hmm. and do anything about offsetting the real damage that's happening from that system to those, you know, even just to the players, forget sort of all of the collateral damage, to, like the people that I end up writing about. Mm-hmm. Um, I wrote a chapter for the book. So the book that I'm writing, I'm co-authoring it with Kavitha Davidson at ESPN, and it's called How to Love Sports When They Don't Love You Back, which she came up with a brilliant title.
0: That's a great title.
1: I know. And every chapter is a different issue in sports, so it's a thematic thing. So I wrote a chapter on doping.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I wrote a chapter on racism and sexism and tennis. <laughs> I did that one. Um, but then, you know, I'm, I'm working on the brain trauma one. I'm writing one about Native mascots and... I did one on mega events. So world cup and Olympics. Right. And I honestly don't know, like if you can watch and consume the Olympics Mm -hmm. without participating in a really incredibly terrible system that goes in and destroys local communities. Mm -hmm. I don't know, like if that's actually possible. Um, but I struggle with that too, because, and I wrote this in the chapter one of the biggest platforms for women's sport is the World Cup and the Olympics, and so if we're getting rid of this thing, like we have to have a replacement at least for this. Like women's sport would be so damaged. Right. If, um, but it, if that's not worth people like their lives being ruined, um, or killed. You know, people die, and um, with the way that the these cities get torn up, um, by you know, the development and all those sort of things that go along with, um, the Olympics coming in. So, you know, that's not worth it, <laughs> right. um, but it is still super important. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. And so that's like, can you ethically consume those products? I don't know. I'm going to watch though, the winter mm-hmm. Olympics. <laughs> yeah, I will <laughs> like, too. Like, I'll just feel bad about it, I guess. Yeah.
0: Well, I, mean, I look forward to the Olympics every four years. Like, it's just, I don't know. There's something about that event that, And objectively, I know that horrible stuff is happening, right? I know there's corruption at all levels. Um, I know that there's a lot of uh, money changing hands behind the scenes and that kind of stuff and that there's exploitation. But at the same time, like, and and I feel like in a world, and maybe this kind of gets to one of the root of the problem, in a world where so much of it is just awful, you get those moments like, you know, okay, here's a sprinter, you know, uh, a competitor Mm -hmm. from another team. Uh, from another country, like, goes down, blows out her knee. This other sprinter gives up her shot at a medal that she's trained years for and helps her to the finish line. Like, stuff like that. It's like, that's, like, I don't know. Like, it, maybe it doesn't offset it, but in a weird way, like, it's kind of like you, you couldn't get moments like that without stuff like that. And it's almost life-affirming in, in, in a strange way. At the same time, like, in the back of your head, but you're like, yes, but all this other stuff, right?
1: yeah. Yeah, there's, I mean, the if people don't know, they should go look it up. But, like, what happens in these mm-hmm. cities that host these events are is horrible um, from top to bottom. Mm-hmm. Pl- you know, the militarization of police force, the amount of public money that goes into venues that just end were up being a- nothing, um, just the displacement. I mean, something like they're saying, like, when Beijing hosted 80,000 people were displaced from their homes. Mm-hmm. I mean, just the things that these cities do in order to be able to host these games can just be so horrible and things like the militarization of police forces mm-hmm. stick around, right? right? Like these cities purchase these big badass um army or like military grade things in order to protect from terrorism and that they don't like get rid of them when it's mm-hmm. over. So now this local community, you know, just like, ha, all that stuff, but, like, I love watching the Olympics. Mm -hmm. Like, I love watching especially the women, but, I mean, I, like, I just will watch all of it for two weeks Mm because I just find it so exhilarating. And for the reasons that you laid out, and one of the people I interviewed for the book is a huge critic of mega events. His name is Jules Boykoff. He's a Mm -hmm. professor. But Jules, like, went to the Olympics. Like, he used to be an Olympian, Um, and he has his own, like, conflicted feelings about all these things despite the incredible work he's done over the years to expose all of this so yeah I don't know I, I, I don't know if there's an answer to your question
0: well let me ask a kind of a different question so I want to um, give a shout out to my friend Lindsay Wachowiak. Um, we used to do podcasts together and that sort of thing so hi Lindsay um, but she had a question for you that I think we've, we've addressed in some ways but maybe we can use this kind of like a springboard to tie all of this together um, okay she asked how can we square being sports fans even or especially college uh, sports fans when the institutions of competitive sports both foster a safe haven for predators and also prey on the bodies of the athletes and particular uh like young black men and that kind of thing
1: mm-hmm. um
0: and, and the whole question of intersectionality in sports is something you get into in the book um and how there are different experiences and like how that uh, you know like the experience of young black men in uh in sports ties into the whole question of like advancement attainment education and that kind of thing. But I wonder in a weird way, like maybe there's not such a thing as ethical consumption of sports. Maybe, however, and I want to see what you think about this. Could we maybe look at sports instead as a way of maybe identifying these underlying systemic social problems and bringing them to light and then maybe allowing us the chance to be to at least a acknowledge they're there and B, maybe start to help gra- uh, help us grapple with means of solving them. Um, and it's not going to be a quick fix in any of these situations, right? But, right. you know, with, with through sports, could we almost look at it as almost like a mirror that tells us what our problems are and puts them into some sort of objective frame that we can look at and from that maybe start to develop longer term um, infrastructural solutions?
1: Yeah, I think so. And I think that's why I wrote the book that I wrote, Mm -hmm. right? So people ask, like, you know, I get asked, like, couldn't you have written this about whatever other thing? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, gender violence is everywhere. There's all kinds of systems that protect people who are reported to have done it. Uh, And certainly there are plenty of avenues, right? But I think we care so deeply about sport, Mm -hmm. right? And so part of it is that we're willing to have conversations. Um, You know, sometimes it's a frustration because, like, what's going to happen to my team if this player isn't allowed to play because he failed a class, because he was arrested, because of whatever the thing is, right? So then we're willing to have a conversation about this thing, about how academics and and sport work on a college campus, right? Mm -hmm. We're willing to talk about it there, because it somehow impacts this team that we care so deeply for mm-hmm. and so part of it was like I'm going to write where the story is like this is where we're having a conversation I'm going to write about it here um, and so I absolutely think sport has that potential um, you know it's hard because like uh, it's absolutely there's very specific groups of people who we're learning on the backs of right, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if you can actually consume money-making college sports at this point uh, without, I don't know how you do it and not feel bad about Mm -hmm. yourself in some way. And I know there are lots of people who manage it. um, And, you know, one of the big things that we tell ourselves is these guys are getting a free education, but Mm -hmm. I would encourage anyone who believes that to go look at the way that that's a racialized thing Mm -hmm. that the players the black players who are the majority of most basketball and football teams in this country, which are the money-making teams at most universities, have a, they tend to have a much lower graduation rate mm-hmm. than their co-student athletes or even, the, and especially than the general population of students at the school. So they're not actually getting the free education that we all believe that they are. And then on top of that, the thing, like the UNC, no one, No one should believe that nothing bad happened at UNC because the NCAA was too cowardly to punish them Mm -hmm. for what went down there. There's an amazing book called Cheated that was written by two uh, UNC people. One was a whistleblower, one is a professor, I want to say Jay Smith, who's still there. Mm -hmm. And it details, like agonizingly, (laughs) details all the ways that these student-athletes were cheated out of an education in order to keep them on the field or the court. And... So, like, even the one thing that most people can use is, like, the excuse for why it's worth it for us mm-hmm. to allow the exploitation of these guys it doesn't even hold up. If you do any kind of work and, like, are willing to engage on it in any way, mm-hmm. it doesn't hold up. It's, that alone is exploitative. Um, oh, it's hard. So, at this point, I, I don't know what to do about college sports. Like, I do think it's so broken, Mm-hmm. in ways that are so harmful and the money just gets bigger all the time and that makes me very fearful for what that means as far as what change can look like um and I don't I don't know I don't know what we do about that at at this point um I think it's a maybe a local thing mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. alumni at certain schools should be asking lots of questions all the time. I mean, it matters when the media comes in and shines spotlights on things, but, uh, you know, like one thing I tell people when they, they're like, well, my school hasn't gotten caught yet for not caring about sexual violence or whatever the thing is. And I'm like, well, then you call them up and ask them about what prevention programs they have in place. Right. Right. Um, see what work they're doing now to make sure, do they have a title nine coordinator? How long has that person been there? Is it, are they full time? Do they have to do some other kind of job? Um, is the process easy to find online if someone reports? Um, are they specifically talking to student athletes about this? Blah, blah, blah. like, there's all kinds of questions you can ask about your own institutions. And maybe that's how we go after this piece by piece, you know, one bite at a time, I don't know. Um, but yeah, so I, I think both things are true. Like I think, the exploitation is real and terrible mm-hmm. and makes it very difficult for me um, to consume anymore because of it. At the same time, I'm going to keep writing and talking about it because I think that is a space where people care. Mm-hmm. And if we're going to change stuff, it will probably start there. Like sports has a long history of being catalysts for change, right? Because mm-hmm. of how deeply we are invested in it.
0: All right. Well, Jessica, right, well. thank you so much for being a part of the show. Uh, it was a really enlightening conversation, um, and definitely a lot to think about. Uh, especially as we get closer to like the, the college football playoffs, the Super Bowl, that kind of thing. It's certainly uh, worth keeping these things in mind. So, Jessica, thank you again for being on Serious Fun.
1: Yeah. Thanks for having me.
0: I'd like to thank Jessica Luther once again and remind you that you can check out her book On Sportsmanlike Conduct, College Football and the Politics of Rape anywhere books are sold. I highly recommend it. Until next time, I'm Brian Carr and this has been Serious Fun on the UWGB Phoenix Studios Podcast Network.
1: You just listened to a Phoenix Studio production, the podcast network for the University of Wisconsin Green Bay. For more podcasts, visit uwgb.edu forward slash podcasts.